God calls us to serve the body of Christ. We're part of the body. You know, about 14 years ago, God saved me. I had filed for divorce. I was gonna, we didn't have kids. Our marriage was gonna be over. God saved me. Why wouldn't I be obedient to Him and serve? So my name is Mark Haverkorn. I serve here at the church in Camp Rio in the children's ministry and the first aid team. Throughout our Christian marriage, my wife and I have always pretty much attended large churches. And when you walk into a large church, it's a little overwhelming. There's people everywhere. There's multiple stories and signs and booths and activity. And one way that we've made Oak Hills feel smaller is through serving. We've gotten to know people that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Uh, at Easter this year, they were asking for volunteers, and I, I went and just looked at the different opportunities, and I said, you know, first aid team fits right with my daily job and uh, what I've studied my whole life, so let's, I'll do that too. It's been an act of obedience, and I think the act of obedience, doing what the Bible calls me to, following Christ, that develops maturity, spiritual maturity, and that has benefited my life. Serving with my wife and next to my wife brings us together. It's good for our relationship, and it's good for the kids to just see us committed to serving. Don't want to serve every single day. Some days I'd rather be at home, but I know that if I go serve, I'm obeying God and I'm following Him. You know, my, <laughs> my kids are not always excited to come serve, but we want them to know that that's important to serve people, but to serve Christ while we're doing that. You know, I would encourage other others to serve and especially other men to serve because you can lead your family well through that. Uh, you can love your wife that way, serving with her. You can develop your children. Uh, you can set the tone for your family. Well, it is an incredible honor to be with you on Father's Day. I love being a dad. Uh, God has given my wife and I the privilege of raising five sons. Uh, yeah, so our lives are... Uh, really hectic. We usually feel more like camp counselors or referees than we do like parents. And um, it's nonstop action in our home. The future men that are in our house are 14, 13, 10, 7, and 5 years old. Now, yeah, uh, according to my math, that means I've got 49 years of parenting experience. Um, being a dad is uh, an immense joy. It's so much fun. And I'm, I'm really tired a lot of the time. But uh, it's, it's one of God's richest blessings in my life, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And so it's an honor to be able to be with you today, to open God's Word, and to, and to consider God as our Father. But as we do that, I know that for, for a lot of us, it's not this joyous day where we celebrate uh, the, the man who lovingly raised us, uh, the man who... Uh, cared for us and provided for us, today could, could for many of you, I'm imagining, be a, a day full of pain or a day full of disappointment. You see, my own story is at the intersection of those two experiences of joy and of pain. I don't know my earthly father. The only memory I have of him comes when I was 16 years old. I was sitting next to my mom at the Smith County Courthouse. You see, my parents separated when I was less than a year old. And uh, as we sat there that day waiting for a child support hearing case um, and in an attempt to, to collect something that, that we never received, um, we waited what seemed like most of the day. 
until the bailiff finally came out and um, called the two of us, called our case, and, and the two of us kind of gathered our things. Uh, we stood up and made our way into the courtroom. Uh, at the time that we did that, so did a man who was on the other side of the room. He'd been there the whole day, uh, but there hadn't been any interaction, uh, nothing exchanged. I didn't even know he was there. And so uh, we proceeded to make our way in there, um, and, and the case was heard. Uh, but that's the only memory I have of my earthly father. Uh, so the word that comes to my mind when I think about him and my relationship with him is stranger. You can imagine that because of that, Father's Day has, has historically been a day that I've, I've dreaded. It's not a day that I've, I've circled on the calendar and looked forward to. Uh, Father's Day became an opportunity to really uh, pry open and rip open the scab of my father wound. And when I watched other people celebrate their dads, I only grew sad or bitter over what they had and I never got to experience. But God in his grace began to teach me about him as my heavenly father. Began to, to show me that I could use this day, not as a day to focus on what is missing from my own life, but as a day to celebrate his goodness and to concentrate on him. And so that's what I'd like to lead us to do today. We're going to consider our perfect Heavenly Father. We're going to turn our gaze from the fathers that he's given us here on earth, and we're going to focus on our Father in heaven. So let's turn to the scriptures. We're going to go first to the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, teaches his disciples how to pray. And in the opening of that prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Christians call God their Father because that's what Jesus taught his disciples to do. It's an amazing thing because in the Old Testament, God is referred to Father just a minuscule number of times. In fact, traditionally and, and uh, the majority of the time, God is referred to as Yahweh over 6,500 times. That's how God's people knew him, as a God who is uh, high and elevated and lifted up and a little bit removed. It was hard. They wouldn't even write out the full name. They wouldn't speak it because of how great and grand and wonderful he is. And so Jesus flips the script a little bit. He changes us. Uh, it changes the way that we refer to our God. He says, call him Father. Your, his name is still hallowed. It is still to be revered. He is still exalted in the heavens, and yet he is Father. He is the one who has adopted you into his family and loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And so what we're going to do uh, is we're going to continue reading in this uh, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to jump to verse, or chapter 7, verse 7. And as Jesus continues to teach us about prayer, he embeds in the middle of that teaching some truths that we're going to look at about how God is our Heavenly Father. So uh, picking up in chapter 7, verse 7, it says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks, 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now this this is a very profound passage that teaches us so much about the nature of prayer. But at the same time, we learn a lot about God as our Father right here in Matthew chapter 7. And so let's, what I want us to do for the next few minutes is extract some of the key truths that Jesus embeds into this teaching on prayer uh, about our Heavenly Father. The first thing, it's kind of obvious, God is our Heavenly Father. He's repeated this multiple times in this sermon. He keeps telling us God is our Father. It was uh, Jesus' favorite way of referring to God as Father. And he teaches us to do the same thing. And so what we're to take from that is regardless of our family situation here on earth, we are all to know that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, one who has welcomed us into his family, has adopted us to be his children. Secondly, we're to learn our Heavenly Father is good. Most of these truths are right there in verse 11. And it says, there's this comparison. Did you catch it? It, there's this uh, description of an earthly father who, who's never going to give a stone when his son asks for bread or give him a snake when he asks for a fish. That, that our fathers in, on earth lovingly provide for us. They care for our needs. They uh, respond to our requests and they give us what we need. But uh, Jesus teaches us that in comparison to God, that we are in fact the best of us on earth are evil in comparison to God. Now, he's not doing that to diminish earthly fathers, to, to tell us or to tear us down as, as, uh, in some way. Uh, it's super, the role of father is super important. We carry the same name as God. He, that title is one that we share with him. So, so he's not diminishing us. This is really about elevating God and our understanding of him as our father. He is so good. It's really beyond, beyond our comprehension. Uh, that we would be considered evil in comparison to him. The next thing, the third one here, is our Heavenly Father is generous. This is uh, the very nature of God. He loves to give good gifts to his children. How much more will he give good gifts to his children, it says. We're familiar with uh, John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. God is by nature a giver. James 1.17 teaches us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from our Father in heaven. He gives gifts to his children. That is what he does, and he desires to do it with us as well. And then fourthly, our Heavenly Father is approachable. Now this one might be a little bit harder for us. It's right there at the end of verse 11. Uh, He gives good gifts to those who ask him. This is inviting us, letting us know that that God cares for us. He's attentive to our request. He wants to hear from us. But I think this is challenging for us because uh, it's not too difficult for us to think of God as big and powerful and reigning in the heavens. But but I know in my own life, at times it's hard to trust that he's near and that he's personal. 
I think we come by that honestly. Uh, in human terms, as somebody rises in authority and power, they become less accessible. I couldn't today walk into the uh, Oval Office and have a conversation with our president. There's a bunch of layers that make him inaccessible to me. But that's not true with God. His, his power, his holiness, his immensity, the fact that he reigns supreme over all of the earth in no way compromises his approachability. There's a, a quote from the great Timothy Keller, uh, a author and pastor who I consider a hero in ministry. Uh, he recently passed, but he left us uh, a million great quotes. Uh, but there's one in particular that I want to bring forward today because it helps us understand the shocking reality of God's approachability. He says this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. The, the Lord of the universe, the King of kings says, come to me. I don't care what time it is. I don't care what you need. I'm here for you. We have that kind of access, church. This is something that we need to wrestle with and grasp. God is not unapproachable. He is caring and attentive. He invites us to cast our cares on him. So this is a powerful truth, a series of truths, in fact, that God is good and he is generous and he is approachable. But at the same time that we realize that God is these things, it's also important for us to recognize uh, that there are more attributes to God as our Father. There's more that he does in our life. Specifically, uh, we're going to go to a, a passage in Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, this is a, a passage that God used uh, very uh, instrumentally in my life to help me understand who he is and how he relates to me as uh, my father, but also how I'm to father my sons. Uh, because in Hebrews chapter 12, he teaches us about he, how he disciplines his children and those that he loves. Now, these aren't two uh, things that we're supposed to like teeter-totter between. These are two truths or, or two sets of truths that we're to hold in tandem because they reflect the fullness of God and his love for us. Um, so uh, I think one of the ways that helps us understand that before we go to Hebrews is to put this kind of in human terms. So when I think about my love for my sons and I love to get down on the floor and I love to wrestle with them and tickle with them and we laugh and we have a great time or we'll go to Six Flags or we'll uh, have ice cream, like these things that they will interpret as generosity, uh, as me giving them things that they will rejoice in. Well, the same love that motivates me to do those things is the same love that causes me and leads me to discipline them. To tell them, hey, that's not the way you treat your brother. It's not okay to speak to your mother that way. Um, that you said you were going to do this or you were asked to take care of this and you didn't. And so now there's a consequence for you. Um, I want to train them up in the way of the Lord so that they would know him. And so I discipline them out of a love for them. But that same love that, that disciplines us is the same love that God pours out in our lives to give us generous gifts. These are not at odds with one another. And so let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 5 and understand the discipline of our Heavenly Father. It says this, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? Sorry, 
addresses you as a father addresses his sons. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now let's be really clear before we proceed any further, and I want to read some more, but before we go any further, we have to be clear about what this passage is saying and what it's not saying, okay? Uh, Discipline and punishment, they're not the same thing. We need to, to understand that discipline is focused on the good of the one who's being disciplined, while punishment is generally uh, rooted in justice, and it's primarily concerned with the good of the one who's been offended. Okay, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Now, we serve a God who is holy and just, and because he is holy and just, he must punish evil. He must punish sin, and that's precisely what he's done in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, Jesus took on our sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him. He bore our punishment. The the punishment that we deserved was on him. And so now there is no condemnation, no judgment, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so God will bring things into our life that are confusing, that are hard, that that, don't, that aren't particularly comfortable, but those aren't punishment. We're to see those as discipline. Because in his discipline, in the consequences that he brings into our lives, um, the Bible teaches us that those are moments that we're actually to rejoice. We're to consider a great joy when faced with trials. Because that leads us to grow in perseverance and in maturity. It leads us to depend more on God and to be grateful for what he's given us. It helps us understand what is good in our lives. So let's continue reading in Hebrews 12, recognizing that discipline and punishment are not the same thing. So let's understand, enduring hardship as discipline Uh, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you were not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you were not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us key in here, for our own good. It's in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Now, church, I want to do the same thing with this passage in Hebrews 12 that we did with the passage in Matthew. I want us to to mine its depths, and extract a few of the truths that are revealed to us about God as our Heavenly Father. So the first one for us to see, very plainly stated, is our Heavenly Father disciplines us. This is normative. We should come to expect that a God who loves us, who gives us great gifts and is approachable, He also disciplines us. And so what that means is we should train ourselves to recognize 
if we're going through a, a difficulty in life, if, if we're experiencing something that's hard for us to understand, a question for us to ask is, is God disciplining me? Maybe a better question is, is this circumstance something that God wants to use to, to lead me to depend on him more and to understand his intentions for my life? Not to place my hope in this world or on that thing or in that person, but rather to put my hope in him. The second thing, well, oh, uh, here's uh, one of the questions that came to me as I, I was explaining this to a friend. How am I to discern whether this circumstance, this hardship in my life is God's discipline or it's simply the presence of evil or brokenness in our sinful world? And, and here's the thing, I can't step into your world and, and discern that for you. Um, but God in his goodness will be able through his spirit to reveal that to you. But what I can do is, is look back into the scriptures and give you evidence of, of two occasions that are very clear about God's discipline. Okay, so the first one is Moses. Moses was the uh, leader of the Israelites. He uh, led them out of Egypt in uh, the same God that enabled Moses uh, to, to split the Red Sea and to walk across on dry ground is the same God who came to Moses and said, you can't enter the promised land with your people. Because of your disobedience, because you struck the rock instead of speaking to it as I instructed you, you cannot enter with your people. That will be for my servant, Joshua. And then let's look at the life of David. In David's life, we learn that, that David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, what higher praise could there be for that but the same father who, who uh, gives David, uh, recognizes David as that man, is the same God who said to David, hey, this temple that you desire to build in honor of me, you're not going to be able to do that. Because of the blood that you've shed, because of the life that you've lived, and there's a consequence to that. And you, this temple will not be built by you. It will be built by your son, Solomon. So there are times when God will withhold what he would love to give to us as a consequence of our sin, as a way to discipline us and to teach us what is good and right. So we should expect that God is going to discipline us. But secondly, we should also recognize that his discipline is evidence of his love. It's not him being a stingy God who wants to take something out on us because he's mad or angry. No, his punishment is fully satisfied in the cross. There's nothing we could do to offend God because that's already been covered by the blood of Jesus. He wants us to share in his holiness. He wants to prove to us that we're his legitimate children, that he's adopted us. And the way that he does that is he disciplines us, just like our earthly fathers discipline us as evidence of their love for us. So the third thing is that his discipline is for our good. When we experience discipline, God is not being cavalier. He is doing it to produce something in us. There's a purpose for it. God is never going to waste a hurt or inflict a pain that he didn't intend to produce something in us. And so that leads us to our last point. His discipline isn't pleasant. Right there in verse 11, it seems painful, but it is productive. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Listen to this caveat for those 
who are trained by it. So as we experience the discipline of God in our lives, we have a decision to make. We can choose to think of this difficulty, this hardship, as evidence that God is is not present with us, that he doesn't care about us, that he isn't here with me, he doesn't hear me when I call to him. Or we can say, perhaps this is God disciplining me. Perhaps this is an opportunity for me to lean into and listen to my father. What instruction does he have for me in this moment? How how is he trying to speak to me? We need never fear God or hesitate in the face of hardships that he brings into our lives because he's not uh, ever doing it to punish us. He's doing it lovingly for our good. I think that as we begin to understand the discipline of God, it'll transform the way that we experience our daily lives and we will uh, recognize that our good father that gives us good gifts is the same father who brings discipline into our lives. I also think an understanding of the discipline of God enables us dads to to transform the way that we discipline our children. When when we're confronted in that moment with our son or our daughter with an opportunity to discipline them, we have to treat that as a serious moment because dads, we're called to be a clear and compelling reflection of our heavenly father to our children. We have an opportunity In fact, a responsibility because we carry the same title that he has, Father. Uh, Through our actions, we're either going to incline our children to embrace the love of their true and heavenly Father. Or we're going to cause them to doubt his goodness and love. And I think it's in discipline, in disciplining our children, that that is primarily experienced. And so, dads, I want to equip you with a question that I learned as a result of uh, studying in this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 about no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. And this is the question. When you're in that moment, when you're confronted with the sin and disobedience of your children, and you have a decision to make about how to handle that, I want you to ask, are my actions in this moment going to help my kids know, love, and obey their true father? Or am I making a decision that's going to cause them to doubt his goodness and love for them? Because if you are, as I have often done, then uh, we're actually more than likely punishing them. Or we're seeking some, our own good and not their good. We're not reflecting the love of their heavenly father. Believe me, I know that navigating the road of discipline can be very difficult. I've found myself in the ditch on either side of this road. Most of my mistakes in being a father boil down to one of two things. I'm either punitive or I'm passive. I want to punish them or I avoid punishing them. But the problem with that, dads, think about this. When we're overly harsh and we use fear to control our children, all we do is exasperate them. And, and, and they run from us. They resist us. But on the other hand, if, if I'm so concerned about over-disciplining or, or, or punishing and I swing to the other side, then I'm under-disciplining and I'm, I'm passive and I avoid that moment when my child has continually disobeyed over and over again. And in that moment, 
all I'm doing is being an accomplice in their own destruction. I'm allowing them to go in a direction that's dangerous for them. And I'm not seeing the opportunity that I have to teach and to train and to help them experience the goodness of God. I'm not up here to pretend that I'm the perfect dad. Believe me, I am not. You can ask my kids. Nothing surfaces my sinful, selfish heart like being a father. I've been harsh with my sons. I have lost my temper. I have been angry. I've treated them more like a bother or an annoyance. I've raised my voice, and I've had to ask for their forgiveness. I've had to go before them and apologize for the ways that I've treated them. And dads, I expect in a room like this, there are many of you who feel similarly. I've had countless conversations with dads who feel like they've made a mess of this. So here's the word I want to provide you. Um, We don't have to be perfect because our kids have a perfect father and it's not us. We could never save our children. We could never be the one to transform their heart or lead them away from a temptation the way that God can. Free yourself from that burden. Once we grasp this, it enables us to recognize that even in the midst of our shortcomings, not in spite of them, but in the midst of our shortcomings, God can pursue our sons and our daughters. He can show them his great and wonderful love for them. He is their perfect father. So let's not make it about us. We're going to fail them. But he never will. And so what I want us to do as we wrap up is take the truths that we learned from Matthew chapter 7 and take these truths that we learned from Hebrews chapter 12 and I want us to put them together. And I want us to recognize that these are not irreconcilable differences or a schizophrenic God. Instead, these are facets of the same beautiful diamond that is God's love for us, our Heavenly Father's love. So we learn that our Heavenly Father, let's go to, there it is. God is our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father, He is good. Our Heavenly Father is generous and He is approachable. He invites us to come to Him the King of Kings. But we also know that our Heavenly Father, He disciplines us. His discipline, it's evidence of His love for us. His discipline is always, always for our good. And His discipline, it's not gonna seem pleasant, but it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. Church, do you believe that today? Do you believe? Yeah. Do you believe that we have this God who is high and reigning above the heavens? He's over, superintending over everything in the world and all of the universe, and yet he wants us to come to him. And he is the best teacher, the best father that we could ever know. One of my favorite moments comes at the end of the day uh, when we're putting our boys to bed. Specifically right now, it's our five-year-old and our seven-year-old, Calvin and Cohen. These boys, we lay in the dark and they're tucked into their beds. And there's something incredibly beautiful about how they can kind of recount and debrief the events of the day. They can leave behind all of the troubles 
that, that they had, we can express gratitude in our hearts to God in prayer. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're not ready to take up those concerns. They're at peace. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would be able to rest in the secure love of our perfectly fa- perfect father who loves us more than we could ever comprehend and better than any earthly father ever could. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your goodness is beyond our comprehension and, and yet we've experienced it, we know it. We confess that at times things get confusing and we doubt it. And so remind us again today Remind us that you love us more than we could possibly grasp. Minister to our hearts, encourage us. Thank you, Father, for your love and for your word that reveals who you are as our Father. You are good and we're thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.